0: Audio Ground School podcast. Hey, what's up, pilots? This is Nick. I wanted to take a second and talk about the ultimate private pilot test prep book. Now, we don't have a ton of reviews yet on Amazon, but a lot of people have gotten it and we have a lot of good feedback from it. And the reason why is because it blows out all those other test prep books out of the water, right? If you've gotten a test prep book before, it's got a bunch of FA written test questions. It's good for that. It's good for that rote memorization, practicing those test problems and stuff. But if you want to learn beyond that, it might have some bullet point summaries of some of the subjects it might tell you some tips on multiple choice test strategies but that's about it right so what if you want to learn this stuff at a fundamental level what if you want to go deeper on any of these topics because you're just not getting these topics and the reason I made this is because we don't have anything physical and I myself am someone who really likes to study with something physical in my hands I like to take it with me to the beach to the park when I'm traveling whatever. So I wanted to make a book unlike any of the other books. So that's what I did with the Ultimate Private Path Test Prep. So how is it different? Well, it's got all those test questions just like the other books. It covers every single subject just like the other books, but it breaks things down in explains all the concepts in simple English. And then you add in diagrams and visual aids that those books do not have. And then you also add in QR codes. You know, those little QR codes that you scan to bring up a menu that came around during COVID. So yeah, you can do that with your mobile device, your iPad, whatever. And it'll bring up a video lesson on what you're watching. We also have a bunch of QR codes in there for free downloads, as well as free practice tests that come with the book. So it's on Amazon. I'll put a link in the show notes. It's only 37 dollars and it's got literally everything you guys that's why it's the ultimate test prep book it's the best bet you can get for one single book when you're studying for your private pilot test so check it out hey what's going on pilots this is nick from part-time pilot Your host of the Audio Ground School podcast, where I simply go through our online ground school lessons. I read them off, but I also add, you know, maybe some stories here and there, some examples, some perspective that is good for the audio format, completely free. If you're just starting listening, go back, get all our, what is it now? This is episode 54, about 60, 65% through the online ground school. So go and check, catch up with all that stuff. It has been an awesome ride. We now have over 150,000 downloads of the podcast. That is super awesome. So today we are going to continue through just like we have been. You know, I think last week we had a a couple weeks ago we had a bonus lesson, but we're going to continue on through the ground school lessons. And we're on section 12. So if you're in the online ground school, if you're not, I highly recommend it. These audio lessons, plus all the other content that the written and the video and the quizzes and stuff like that, as well as our study group, all that combined really gives you that ultimate learning experience. But so if you're following along, you want to go to your step one, the private pilot lessons course, and then you're going to go to cross country planning, which is section 12. So you're going to go to step one course and then you're going to go section 12 cross country planning and we are on lesson 4 which is distances between checkpoints and then we're probably going to get through that and then maybe lesson 5 which is estimate fuel needed so this is all the section all about cross country planning we're doing it step by step how to plan your cross country this is not only something you need to know you know to become a good pilot good private pilot there's going to be a bunch of fa written type questions that will review and problems that you might have for that in these lessons and then also you're going to have to do this for your check ride so it's very very good for that check ride scenario that you're going to have to plan and i just had a conversation we'll get to this in a little bit We're going to go over the listener questions, but I had a question about that, you know, about like, do we have to do all this cross-country planning every single time? So I thought that was a really good question, and we'll get to that here in a second. But before we do that, before we get to the lesson, I've started a new, you know, a couple new segments at the beginning of each lesson. One is if you leave us a review, it really, really helps us out. So you can leave us a rating on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, but on Apple Podcasts, you can leave us a review where you can actually like you know type stuff and, and tell us how you like it and if you leave us a review there I will read it off here on the podcast so I have a couple to read off and the first one is short and sweet it's by honestly for you title is cool five stars interesting listen <laughs> thank you honestly for you I really appreciate it and then the other one is aileron by aileron sport and it says getting my wings back coming back to aviation after 25 years I have a lot of catching up I found this amazing podcast along my journey and I'm so thankful. It is my morning routine for the first two hours of my day. This podcast is in my ear. I am a runner and I love bringing it along. Tips to running with this podcast. Listen. Oh, so they're giving us some tips to run with the podcast. I love it. Listen to the episodes that have subjects you're only reviewing and have a good grasp of. If you try to listen to episodes that you have new concepts, you will have a hard time focusing. This podcast is awesome, and I suggest it to every pilot and student I come across. That is an amazing review, Aileron Sport. Thank you for listening, and thank you for the great review and the tip. I totally agree with that tip. You know, audio is a unique format to learn things. It's sort of like reading uh, in the fact that, like, when you read something let's say you read something you have to visualize and figure out what it looks like and how it works in your mind and that i think helps with the learning process you know some people are are more geared towards videos they have to see that and maybe that's just how my mind works maybe my mind creates those visions and maybe other people's they need those visions to see i don't know I'm not saying one's better than the other I'm not sure how it works but audio is kind of similar to that when you listen to it you kind of have to you're also thinking in your mind how best it plays out in your head, how to visualize that and stuff like that. And so he or she is right that like, if it's a brand new subject, you might not wanna be doing it multitasking, right? You might wanna be able to sit down and maybe concentrate, maybe take some notes or something like that. But if it's a subject you've already seen or heard, then it's perfect for running, driving, something like that. So that is a great point. And this is why this is perfect Compliment to the rest of the stuff in our online ground school and why I recommend that our students read the lessons, watch our videos and see our mnemonic devices and our diagrams in that lesson as well. And then let's say they get through three lessons, then, you know, go on a run. You know, when you're driving to work, when you're driving home from work, listen to those lessons and that'll just bake it deep into your mind. And then you come home, you can take the quizzes on that lesson and really see how well it's really entrenched into your mind. So awesome review and great tips. So thank you for that. So yeah, please, it really helps us, you know, get noticed. And the more we get noticed, the more opportunities we will have. I am currently looking to, you know, have some sponsors and all the sponsors are going to go to our scholarships. So, you know, the more we get reviewed, the more we get seen, the more we can help you guys out. So that has been the goal since day one for part-time pilot is to try to build a platform and, in as many ways as possible, help out student pilots and the cost of flying. So that's the goal. OK, so that is our reviews. Read enough for review. That's the segments. I need a little intro to all these segments. Maybe I'll come up with that one soon. But the next segment is our listener questions. So whether we get these by email, you can email us at team at parttimepilot.com or on our Instagram at part period time period pilot or even our TikTok. That's the same name on TikTok or our, our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash part pilot. Submit your questions there, and I might read it off. You can say it's explicitly for the podcast, or you don't have to, and I might still read it off. But we have our Facebook study group for our online ground school members, and I sometimes pick some good questions from there, so that's what I'm going to do today. We'll just do a couple questions for our listener mail. So this wasn't so much the exact question that I got, but going back to what I was talking about earlier in cross-country planning and do we have to do this every time, it was sort of a conversation I was having with a student in our online ground school study group on Facebook. The original question was about, you know, variation. So when you're doing cross-country planning, when do you change your variation to calculate your, you know, your magnetic direction, your magnetic course or heading to convert from true to magnetic. And we'll get to that. It's funny because we're gonna to get to that here in a little bit in our cross country planning in the episode. So the answer to that is it really is up to you. A lot of students do, you know, when they cross the line or a lot of students do, you know, whatever line is closest, that's what I do. Whatever isogonic line is closest, you're gonna use that variation. You could also do, you know, if you're right in between, you could estimate like a decimal. That is fine too. In the end, it's only going to be a degree or so difference. The more north you are, the more variation there is. So you might want to, you know, do estimations in between, but it's not going to change the grand scheme of things at the end of the day. So I think a good estimation is just fine. So that was the original question. But then we kind of talked about they were talking about, you know, I see why people love ForeFlight. There's a lot of info to gather for a couple hour flight just to grab lunch somewhere. So, yeah, this is this is a great point. It's like, you know, why do we have to do this every time? Like, aren't we just going to, you know, when we become pilots, we're just going to use flight? So here is the thing I want to talk about. If you're flying to a location that you've been before, you've flown multiple times, then it's totally fine to use a flight planning tool like ForeFlight. You know, just rely on calling up flight following, having them route them there, calling 1-800-WX-BRIEF and having them give a weather briefing, maybe just checking, you know, the METARs and TAFs at your landing location and then picking an alternate airport. All of that is totally fine. You can make this process a whole lot quicker. But... As a student pilot, you have to learn how ForeFlight does all these calculations that it's doing in the background, right? All these performance calculations for climb to get you climb, descent, cruise, to get you the time and route, the fuel consumption, your courses, your headings, ground speed, all that stuff. You have to understand as a student pilot how that's happening because one, what happens if ForeFlight or whatever stops working and you need to plan a, a trip? Two, you're going to have to show that you know how to do this on your checkride. And three, I recommend, highly recommend that when, even when you're a pilot and you're super experienced and you have four flight and you love it, you use it all the time. That when you go to somewhere new, that you do this a little bit drawn out extensive process of calculating everything in your cross-country plane. Why? Because when you're going somewhere new, when you have to do all the work yourself, all the, you know, the, you have to gather all the weather information, you know, to make all your calculations, you have to pull up, you know, all the performance charts, you have to check runway distances, all that stuff, right? The winds, crosswinds, all that stuff. That's stuff you should know I'm not saying, you know, if you know a flight, you don't need to know that stuff. I'm still saying you still have to know all this stuff. It's just going to be a lot easier with four flight. But when you have to calculate all this stuff out and gather all this individual information out, it makes you think about a lot of things that you wouldn't have thought about before. Things like obstacles near the runway, runway lengths how to enter and exit airspaces or terrain at this new place that you're unfamiliar with, even, you know, how to taxi diagrams or communications, all this stuff that if you were to just punch it into ForeFlight, you know, because it skips some steps for you, you might not think about something. And these flight planning tools are not perfect, right? ForeFlight could put you on a route or have you do something that puts you in a dangerous situation. You know, I'm not saying that's always going to happen, but when you do these things, do them yourselves, you're going to, you're forced to think about the little details and those little details could save your life. So I highly recommend whenever you're going somewhere new to do this drawn out cross-country plan that you learned when you were a student pilot. So you have to do it now as a student pilot, right? Because all these steps are going to be, you're going to be asked how to do them on the FA written. And then you're going to have to show all your work on how you planned your flight on your checkride. So you have to do it as a student pilot and then By the time you become a pilot, I highly recommend doing it on the first couple times you fly to a new place. Anyways, that's that. The next question that we have that I wanna do for these listener questions is, my FAR aim is tabbed out and it's from 2022. Obviously it's 2023, but does it really matter? I can't imagine it does for the written exam, but for the check write oral, which the student doesn't have scheduled yet, it might be a different story do I care about this? Okay, so this is a great question. For the FA written exam, it doesn't matter. As long as you know any changes from the book that you have. So for example, this student has the FAR AIM from 2022. Any changes since then, you'll want to know. So one example of the change is how long a aircraft registration is good for they change that to seven years it's now good for for seven years or change of ownership so that was a change in the fars so you would want to know this i think asa has a if you buy their far aim version they subscribe you to an email list and they email you anytime something changes in the far aim so that would be a great source to use you know something like that where you're getting the updates that's for the written exam and that's for most of your training right? It's okay to buy an old far aim at the flight school to see if they have one that you can rent every time. You know, a lot of people, this guy tabbed it out. That's great. I think it can only help you on your checkride if you have this tabbed out, but I don't want students to get too involved in memorizing the far aim. You need to know the things that are applicable for everyday flight and for flying that are in the far aim and understand what they're saying but don't get too caught up in that, especially for the FA written. When it comes to the check ride, again, the tabbing can help because if you don't know something or you're asked to look something up, it'll help you easily, more quickly look it up. So that I'm totally down for that, anything that helps you. But on the check ride, you'll definitely want a 2023 version or the most up-to-date version. If the examiner sees that it's not up-to-date, they're probably going to have, you know, know those, some of those things that change and quiz you on that. So it gives the examiner an opportunity to try and press you on that or ask you why you don't have the most up-to-date charts. Uh, I've even heard some examiners, this is, in my, in my opinion, it's a little mean, but I've heard them failing students or doing a discontinuance because of outdated charts or far aims or something like that. And I just, for the second, second or third time, heard of a student that's failed their check ride because they had an outdated empty weight for their aircraft. So this has nothing to do with the far aim, but on their check ride, they were using the wrong empty weight. It was the empty weight from when the aircraft was manufactured, but the empty weight can change over time when new things are installed. So just a check ride prep note for you guys right there. Okay, so that has been our reviews. We read off our reviews and our listener questions. Hopefully you guys learned something from them. Okay, so the last thing that I want to just say before we start the lesson, is our next scholarship. So for those of you that don't know, we give out four scholarships a year. They used to all be exclusive to members of the Online Ground School, but we changed that this year. In May, we made one scholarship, a GoFundMe scholarship, where we attempt to raise as much money as possible, and then we let anyone who is flight training in the U.S. apply to it. So in May, we gave out 48 almost $5,000, I think it was, of scholarships, to the people that applied. And then the other three, so we'll do that every May. We'll, we're gonna start that new tradition every May. And that's something I'm gonna try to get, you know, some sponsorships to build that scholarship up. But then we also give out three exclusive scholarships to only our online ground school members. And those are for a thousand dollars. And then the runners up will get their ground school refunded. Not always, but sometimes we do a couple runners up. It depends on the applications, but anyway, so, that is the next one. The due date is August 21st to apply for that. So you have to be in the online ground school. Once you're in, there's a link in your welcome email to apply to this, a short application, but there's also, you can go from your dashboard to my memberships, click on the online ground school or bundle membership, whichever one you got, and then just scroll down and there will be a link there in the information for you to apply. August 21st is going to be the deadline. I think I'm going to announce it on August 28th episode of the podcast. we will see if I can time it out like that, but I'll definitely be announcing it shortly after that. But August 21st is going to be the deadline for that. So, okay, that's all my announcements. Let's get to the lessons. All right. So we're in course step one, Online Ground School Private Pilot Lessons and then Section 12 Cross Country Planning Lesson 4 Distances Between Checkpoints. So the next thing we want to do is, you know, we want to use our plotter tool and chart or our iPad or whatever flight planning software you're using, which, by the way, I recommend, you know, as a student pilot starting with a chart and plotter tool and not getting an iPad and for flight until You've learned this all. I say, you know, wait until you've done a cross country solo by yourself without an iPad before you get, it, and then reward yourself with an iPad. It's gonna make you a lot better pilot knowing that you learned it. to do it the old school way that that is going to teach you all these things and really engrave them in your mind anyways so but whatever you're using we're going to determine the distances between each of our checkpoints that we came up with in the last episode we also want to make sure that we are using the correct scales in terms of the chart and distance units on our plotter tool so this is one of the things that people you know have troubles with especially on the fa written exam this is a huge common reoccurring problem is students using the wrong scale on their plotter tool, or the wrong scale on the FA figures themselves. Because if you notice, and I think I'm, I might talk about this here in a sec, there are scales. On the FA figures, so they have pictures, right? Snapshots from these sectional charts that they're going to have you do these questions on. And then because they resize these and they're not to scale of the actual sectional terminal area charts, they put a scale on there for you to convert to. So when you use your plotter, your plotter tool is going to have scales for nautical miles, statute miles, sectional chart, and terminal area charts. Those are scaled for those terminal and sectional charts not for the fa figures so if you go and just measure with your plotter tool and use that as your answer you're gonna not get the right answer on the fa written you have to convert it to the scale that's on the figure itself in the fa figures so just a reminder for sarah i'm probably going to mention it again most plotters have rulers or scales for sectional charts and nautical miles sectional charts and statute miles Terminal area charts and nautical miles, or terminal area charts and statute miles. So, they have four different scales. They have a scale for sectional charts using nautical miles, right? A scale for sectional charts using statute miles. So, if you're using a sectional chart, you would measure with one of those two scales. And if you wanted nautical miles, you would use that one. If you want statute miles, you would use the statute miles ones. Now, which one do we use? So, I may have mentioned this before, but whenever we our cross-country planning and getting distances for our checkpoints, we want to use nautical miles. And that is the same for like speeds, airspeeds, right? Airspeed is just a distance or ground speed is a distance over time. That distance is in nautical miles. That's kind of where knots comes from, right? Knots is nautical miles per hour, knots. Okay. And then, so what is the difference? When do we use statue miles? So statue miles is like the miles you're used to, right? So if, if you look up on your GPS and it says Starbucks is 2.3 miles away, that's 2.3 statute miles. So that's where, what is it, 5,280 feet in a mile? Well, nautical miles is something like 6,100 feet. Correct me if I'm wrong, something around 6,000 feet per mile. So it's considerably larger. And so why are they different? So nautical miles or knots is a nautical tool term distance used by way back by ships, you know, ships traveling long distance, nautical, right? And aviation took a lot of the same terms, you know, heading, course, knots, nautical miles from, you know, because it made sense. They're traveling long distances. You know, they needed headings, bearings, all that stuff in their navigation. So they took a lot of the terms from ships and, and sailing and stuff like that and just used it for aviation. So they took nautical miles. And the reason why there's such a thing as nautical miles is because it takes into account the curvature of the Earth. So when you travel such long distances like you do in ships and big airplanes that curvature of the earth needs to come into play or else you're going to have some errors. And the larger distances you travel, the more air you will accumulate if you're using statute miles. So when you travel long miles, you got to use nautical miles to be accurate and account for that curvature of the earth. So that's why there is a difference. And that's why when we fly and we flight plan, we use nautical miles. So, When we're measuring these charts, we want to use nautical miles, not statute miles. Statute miles are used more for things like weather and visibility, right? So when we say you want to be this distance away from clouds or we have a visibility that needs to be three statute miles or less because statute miles are like a straight line distance. And when we're flying with visibility, we're using our eyes, which work in a straight distance, right? We say that the visibility is three statute miles. We look in a straight distance at you know a water tower while we're flying that's three statute miles away, and you know if it looks a little fuzzy, we're like okay that's about right, that's where my visibility is ending about three statute miles away. So straight line distances, statute miles, that's why we use that for things like visibility and distance from weather. But when we travel distances, we do airspeed, we only use nautical miles. So again, you don't want to make a mistake of using the ruler for terminal area chart statue miles when you're determining distances on a sectional chart in nautical miles. Starting cross country planning with wrong distance values will make every one of your calculations going forward wrong. So you don't want to do that. And if you don't spot your mistakes soon, soon enough, then you'll end up wasting hours of work, right? You're going to have to, if you make that mistake, everything's going to be wrong. and You're going to have to redo everything because we're still at the beginning of the process. So don't make that mistake. Fill in your distances between each checkpoint on your worksheet and then add them up for a cumulative distance in the next column. So we're talking about when I say worksheet, we're talking about navlog. For some reason, I always forget the term navlog, and I all I think about is worksheet. So when I say worksheet worksheet. I mean navlog. So we have each checkpoint, right? We have our starting airport and then we have checkpoint one, checkpoint two, checkpoint three and so on. And then we have our ending airport. So obviously our distance for our starting airport will be zero. So we're going to have a column for distance. We had a column for altitude in our last episodes. Now we have a column for distance. So our starting airport, our distance is going to be zero. We're going to add another column, which is cumulative distance. So we have a distance to the checkpoint, and then we have a cumulative distance. So at our starting airport, both those are going to be zero at checkpoint one. Let's say checkpoint one is five nautical miles away from our starting, you know, our takeoff airport. So that first distance to checkpoint is going to be five nautical miles. And then our cumulative distance is now five nautical miles. And then let's say the second checkpoint is 10 nautical miles away from checkpoint one. So under the distance to checkpoint, column is going to say 10 nautical miles. And then in the cumulative distance on that row for checkpoint two, it's now going to say 15 nautical miles because that's the total cumulative distance we've traveled. We traveled from our starting airport five nautical miles to checkpoint one and then 10 more nautical miles to checkpoint two for a total of 15 nautical miles. You can do that all the way down until you have an individual distance between each checkpoint in one column and then a total distance traveled in the other column so that at the end when you get to your destination airport at the very bottom that is going to be your cumulative total distance traveled for the flight so how do you measure these distances well it's kind of hard to show or talk about on audio but basically you're going to line up the edge of your plotter tool whatever scale you choose to use right so if you're on a sectional chart you want to find the scale on your plotter tool that says sectional chart nautical mile if you're on a terminal area chart you want to find the scale that says terminal area chart nautical miles and then you want to line that edge up with that scale with your leg of flight so on your sectional chart you have drawn out your different legs of flight from checkpoint to checkpoint and between each checkpoint it should be a straight line and then you want to just line that scale up and you want to measure from the start of that leg of flight to the end. So for example, let's say we're measuring the leg between checkpoint two and three, your starting point will be at checkpoint two, your ending point will be at checkpoint three. So what I like to do is I like to put a nice round number. You don't have to go to the very zero point of your plotter tool, you can, of the plotter tool scale, but I like to just pick a round number, like say, you know, 40, for example. So I put the 40 nautical mile mark of my scale on checkpoint two, and then I read off the number it lines up with the point of my checkpoint 3 let's say that's 63 so my leg of flight from checkpoint 2 to checkpoint 3 goes from 40 nautical miles to 63 nautical miles so I find the difference is 23 nautical miles so I know that leg of flight is 23 nautical miles so again I mentioned before on the FA written exam if you were to just go with that 23 nautical mile value you're gonna get the wrong answer Because if you look on the figures themselves for the FAA written test, they have their own scale. That again is because your plotter tool is scaled to work exactly with sectional charts and terminal area charts. These figures that the FAA have provided are zoomed in or out. So they no longer match those scales of the sectional chart and your plotter tool. And so they have their own scale. So they provide their own scale. So take that 23 nautical miles that you just measured, take your plotter tool and Put it over the scale that they provide on the figure and see what 23 equals. So put, you can go to zero, zero on your scale, on your plotter tool, line that up with the zero on the scale on the FA figure, and then look at 23 on your plotter tool and see what that lines up with on the scale on your FAA figure. It might be something like 27 nautical miles or something a little bit different. It's usually off by about a few nautical miles, but it's enough to give you the wrong answer. Right, so that was a quick lesson on distances between checkpoints. Let's move along to lesson five here of section 12 on cross country planning in the online ground school. Lesson five is on estimate fuel needed. Now, not a lot of people teach this step with a cross country plan. I'll get into why I teach that. So yeah, here we go, estimate fuel needed. It is important to note that these will not be our final fuel calculations, but only an estimation used for planning purposes. Fuel is the last thing we calculate after we have calculated our client performance, cruise power setting, true air speeds, wind corrections, ground speeds, and magnetic headings. If we calculate fuel last and find out that we will need to make a fuel stop but we didn't think ahead and make a leg of our flight to an airport where we can fill up on fuel then we'll have to recalculate all these values for multiple checkpoints this is very time consuming and frustrating trust me i've done it before back when i was a student you know especially when you're learning how to do these things for the first time these cross-country plans can take hours and hours and i don't know Couple times, this happened to me. I was planning out a flight, I did everything. I did all these steps, you know, 15 different steps of calculating all our performance, calculating true air speeds, client performance, cruise performance, wind corrections, ground speeds. I got the ground speeds, I had my distances, I got a time, and then I converted that time to fuel consumption and then added up all my fuel, only to realize that I needed, you know, something like 60 gallons of fuel. Well, hang on a sec. My aircraft can only take 48 gallons of fuel, so crap. So I'm gonna have to stop somewhere for fuel, but did I plan for that in my checkpoints? No, so now I have to go about to the halfway mark, right? I have to go find somewhere like, okay, 30, 35 gallons into my flight, I'm going to find an airport, you know, somewhere around there, an airport that I can land, I can stop, so I have to make a checkpoint to that airport that's now cruising and descending to that airport, filling up a fuel, then taking off at full fuel again from this airport, having landing distance, runway distances that I have to look at. Taking off from that airport, departure procedures, and then getting back into my checkpoint. So that's going to add, you know, a few steps and checkpoints right in the middle. It's going to change everything, right? It might change what cruise altitude I I go to. You know, I'm going to have to change my performance because I have now descents in there and climbs and it's not just cruise. So a lot of things change. I'm going to have to redo almost my entire plan. So what we do is we estimate a pretty good estimation of the fuel that we need right now. Now that we have distances, we have our checkpoints and we have them drawn and we have distances. We can estimate do an estimation of the fuel we will need to know whether or not we're going to have to plan for a fuel stop at this point before we do all that work, then figure it out and have to redo it. So that is why I have this in here and why I teach this. I think it's very, very valuable and helpful, and hopefully it helps you guys avoid spending hours and hours of of rework. So instead, let's be smart so that we can have an idea on if we will need to stop for fuel or not. To do this, let's assume an average So we want to assume a ground speed of 90 knots if the majority of the winds aloft are going to be headwinds. So we can look at the winds aloft right in our area. So we go to aviationweather.gov, we go to the winds aloft table, we look at our area, we look at the average cruise altitude, and we say, okay, for most of our legs of flight, for most of our Courses, is it a majority of a headwind or not? Just real quick, just be like, okay, we're going to be flying into headwind. Let's say we're our ground speed, because that's going to slow us down. A headwind is going to slow us down. So let's say our average ground speed is 90. If the majority of the winds are off are tailwinds, let's say the ground speed is 100 or 110. I like to do 100. I like to do either 90 or 100 to be more conservative. I don't want to say, like, you know, our ground speed is going to be. 120 or something because you always want to be more conservative with fuel. If we say we're going to be just flying along with a giant tailwind, we will estimate less fuel and you never want to estimate less fuel. You always want to have more fuel than you need, right? That's the safe way to do it. So I I either do 90 or 100. If you cannot determine, you know, what the majority of the winds are, just use 90, like I said, to be conservative. So estimating the fuel required now, and this is just a reminder, may save you hours of rework if you didn't plan a fuel stop when you needed one. Right? I have that as a reminder, a bold reminder in there of why we're doing this. Now let's take our total distance to our destination and our estimated ground speed and use them to calculate a total time. So ground speed is just simply distance divided by time. If we multiply both sides of this equation by time, we get an equation solved for distance, which just says distance equals time times ground speed. So now we have distance, but we want time, right? So now we can further divide both sides by ground speed to get an equation solved for time. And that's time equals distance divided by ground speed. And I have these three equations. You know, if you're good at that type of simple algebra, you can do that in your head. I I can do that, but I also have these equations written out in my knee board, solved for ground speed, solved for time solve for distance. So whichever one I need, I can see it right there. And I can just plug it in super simple. So time we solve for time distance over ground speed. We have our total distance. We just estimated a ground speed. Let's call it 90 knots to be conservative. So let's see how that would be used. So, for example, if the majority of our winds aloft look to be headwinds, I would estimate a ground speed of 90 knots, or I would just be conservative and pick 90 knots. And if the total distance to my destination airport is 113 nautical miles, then my total time can be estimated to be 113 divided by 90, or 1.25 hours. Now, let's make a couple more assumptions. Let's assume that our average fuel consumption rate is 12.5 gallons per hour. Now, okay. So this depends on your aircraft. I don't want you going out there and just doing 12.5 gallons per hour. Right now, I'm using an example of a Cherokee Warrior. So, okay, depending on what you fly, that's what most kind of, you know, that or a Cessna 152. You want to know kind of the cruise, and you can get this from your POH fuel consumption rate for your aircraft. And then, but we're not always going to be in cruise, right? We're going to be climbing, which uses more fuel sometimes. So I like to just add a little bit of that. I think 10 or 11 gallons per hour is the cruise fuel consumption rate for a Cherokee Warrior. So I made it 12 and a half gallons per hour. Again, one, because we're going to be climbing using more fuel in some parts of our trip. And then also we always wanna be more conservative, especially when we're planning in if we need a fuel stop or not. So let's assume that our fuel consumption rate is 12.5 gallons per hour. For example, where we're using a Cherokee Warrior, it's gonna change depending on your aircraft. So 10 gallons per hour is standard cruise. Okay, I say that in there, standard cruise consumption for a Cherokee Warrior, but it doesn't take into account the climb. Again, so some pilots for climb use 15 gallons per hour. So if we just estimate go in between that, we're being conservative and we're taking into account the the climb, so let's use that. Now that we have the total fuel consumption, we can find the fuel used, the estimated fuel used. And that's gonna be, the estimated fuel used is gonna be the total time that we calculated times the fuel consumption rate. So remember, we had a distance of 113 nautical miles and an estimated ground speed of 90 nautical miles per hour. So we did 113 divided by 90 to get our time of 1.25 hours. And you want to keep that time in terms of hours because fuel consumption rate is in terms of hours as well. And you always want to have your units the same. So gallons per hour, you want to have hours. So now we can just do the total time times the fuel consumption rate. So if our fuel consumption rate is 12.5 gallons per hour, Our total time is 1.25 hours. We do 1.25 times 12.5 gallons per hour, and we get 15.625, or 15.7 gallons of fuel. We're not done yet. We need to add our reserve fuel and our taxi and run-up fuel. So remember, the FAA requires us in the daytime to have enough fuel at cruise flight to get to our destination, plus 30 minutes of flight. So we have to add another 30 minutes of cruise fuel. And then we're also going to burn some during taxi and run-up. we'll add some for that as well. So let's assume we want to have enough reserve fuel for one hour of flying at 10 gallons per hour. So let's say my personal, this is what I do. I take that FAA rule that they need an extra 30 minutes and I double it. Okay. So at night, the rule FAA rule is 45 minutes. I double that to be an hour and a half. So this is what I do. So I like, again, always being conservative with your fuel. So our cruise fuel consumption is 10 gallons per hour. So let's add an hour of cruise fuel consumption and that. So now we just use the same equation. The estimated fuel use fuel use is total time. So an hour in this case, time the fuel consumption rate, which is 10 gallons per hour. So one times 10 is going to be 10. So now we're going to add 10 to our 15.7 gallons. So now we have 25.7 gallons. And then you can also just safely assume, I think some people do like 1.2 gallons for taxi and run up. I like to just round up to do two gallons, so let's add another two gallons, and that gives us 27.7 gallons. We can now compare this to the max fuel capacity of our aircraft. So again, for a Cherokee Warrior, in this example, that's 48 gallons of usable fuel. You want to use the usable fuel amount and determine if we will need a fuel stop. In this case, we would not, but we would need to fill up if we plan on coming back to our starting airport, right? Because If we just multiply that by two, that's going to be about 56 gallons. So we're going to need 56 gallons to go there and back. So if we're planning on going there and back, we know just by estimating that we're going to have to fill up when we get there. It's smart no matter what to just fill up when you get there and always have a full tank whenever you can get a full tank. But it tells us, hey, we're going to need to do this. So again, but we will not need to plan a fuel stop in between. So that's good. But that's what we did. And now if we were to find, let's say, for a Cherokee Warrior, we have 48 gallons of usable fuel. Again, if we were to find out that we need 55 gallons instead of 27 by 7 gallons, we would now know that we need to put in a fuel stop. So we would go ahead somewhere in there. We would find an airport with fuel services that we can go to plenty of fuel to get there to that airport. And then we'd fill up and then make our way to our final destination. Okay. So in the airport that you'd want to pick, you want to make sure it's rather easy to get to, but also not too close to your starting point, right? You don't want to just like, travel use 10 gallons of fuel and then fill up because you might still run into the problem so you want to use most of your fuel but also have enough reserves so you want to pick something around the middle so you want to make sure you have reserves even to that airport where you're going to fill up that and then once we find that airport we can recalculate our checkpoint distances we can make new legs of flight to that airport and recalculate our checkpoint distances. It's a little bit of rework, but it's much less rework if we were to have done all the performance calculations, ground speeds, times, all that stuff, and then have to redo everything. So let's estimate our fuel. Let's be smart about it. Let's be conservative about it and let's keep ourselves safe and let's avoid a lot of rework. The last note I have on here is if a fuel stop landing is required, you will need to calculate two stages of climb and two stages of cruise in the calculations that are going to follow, which we'll talk about. So just know that obviously you're going to have to climb up to a cruise, descend down to land and then take off, climb up to a cruise again. You're going to have to repeat that process. All right. So that has been estimate fuel needed here, but I do have a video for you guys on estimate fuel needed where I go through an example. You know, so you can see that visual. I'll put that in the show notes. But I think this is it for this episode. We'll continue on next week. We're going to go to, what is it, lesson six of section 12, which is going to be on measuring courses. And then we'll get into also lesson seven, which is winds and temperatures for takeoff, landing, and cruise. So we're going to start gathering that weather information that we need for our calculations, the winds and temperatures. And we're also going to show you how to measure courses. We showed you how to measure the distance of the courses, but what about the direction of our course, our actual course, our true course, or which we'll be measuring the true course, but we'll get into true course, magnetic course, all that stuff. So until next week, I will talk to you guys later. hey guys it's nick i want to take a second to speak directly to the student pilots out there you might be a student pilot that is you know wondering what to do next how to get started or maybe you're looking for the right ground training or flight training or maybe you've already started ground training or flight training and you're stuck you're in a rut and you're looking for a change something to help get you out of that hurdle from my own experience in flight training after Three years, five instructors and $22,000 and wanting to quit multiple, multiple times. And then now, after seeing hundreds and hundreds of student pilots through part-time pilot, I've realized that the number one thing that makes student pilots fail is that they do not have a good fundamental understanding of the ground training when they get to the more advanced flight lessons. Now, who here has seen Top Gun Maverick? Do you remember in the movie when he says, don't think, just do? Now, when I heard this, I was like, oh my goodness, this is brilliant because this is exactly what you have to be as a pilot. Now, of course, it's not that we're not thinking, but it's that we understand things like weather, aerodynamics, what our instruments are telling us, what ATC is telling us. We have such a good core fundamental understanding of these things that we don't have to think about them. And when we don't have to think about them, we can instinctively feel and fly the aircraft, look out for dangers and avoid emergency situations fly a plane for the first time everything's great and damn once you get into you know bad weather flying or flying at heavy heavily trafficked airports or speaking with ATC for Bravo clearance or cross-country flight planning and flying solo on a cross-country flight things get a little more advanced and when this happens and you don't have a good understanding of the ground school concepts you're gonna hit a wall you're gonna start to get behind the aircraft and when this happens Here comes part-time pilot. Again, I said, I went through my own experience of this and I realized that most flight training and ground training is not tailored to the modern day student pilot. When I say modern day student pilot, I should say modern day part-time student pilot because let's face it, there's a very small percentage of us that can go and dedicate 24/7, 365 to our flight training or not even miss a beat and be able to pay for flight training without working. So most of us have a full-time job or maybe a part-time job. We have kids, we have family, we have school, we have all these other responsibilities on top of flight training. And most of these flight trainings and ground trainings are not tailored towards you. And So how is it the part-time pilot tailors to the modern-day student pilot? Well the first way we do that is by keeping ground school interesting. or you can take our quizzes and practice tests to reinforce what you just learned and then finally you can join us live weekly for our live Q&A and our live lessons so you can see in real time these things taught out and these examples done in real time and then finally you can utilize our group community to form study groups get questions answered 24 7 all of this is tailored for the modern-day student pilot to keep ground school interesting keep it from being boring Keep from having that burnout and to find ways that you can consume the content throughout your busy schedule. And guess what? It works. We've had over 350 student pilots come through, take and pass their FAA exams without a single student failing. That's right. A single student has yet to tell me that they failed either their FAA written or their FAA check ride. So that is just proof in the pudding right there that our concepts. The way we explain things in plain written English and the way we give you multiple ways to consume this content is working. So if this sounds like something you might be interested in and you want to come join us, we'd love to have you. Just go to www.parttimepilot.com, click on Online Ground School, and we'll see you inside the Online Ground School. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you guys next week.